It's been fun for me. You know, I, I feel like I've really evolved in the past five years or so from just a fish keeper into being so much more interested in the aquascaping side of it. That's our guest today, Rachel O'Leary. You probably know her from her very popular YouTube channel, as well as seeing her all over social media. She's very active. Sean and I talked to her today, and I got to tell you, I learned a lot. There's, I've been keeping fish for a very long time, and I definitely learned some things that I did not know. And one of the most interesting topics that is related specifically to us aquascapers that comes up later on in the show is melding the fish's natural behaviors, You know, doing the research to find out what those are, and melding it together with our design and our plan selection so that in the end we get the final result that we're looking for that's what it's all about in aquascaping it's taking all of those elements and bringing them together into one unified design and of course one of the most important elements in there is the fish and not only how they look but also how they behave in the environment that you created let's go right into the interview with rachel o'leary I feel like there's there's like two kinds of people that keep fish and plants. The people that are all about the fish and use the plants for comfort, and then there's the people that are all about the plants and use the fish to highlight the plants. And I feel like I'm stuck in this middle ground in between now where I'm trying to do both. And it's been really fun to interact with more and more folks that are more interested in aquascaping, but curious about the fish and, and helping them get the desired result in their aquascaping aquariums. So Rachel, what's the deal with buying fish online? Is that safe to do for somebody who hasn't done it before? What should they know about purchasing mail order fish online? What I always tell people, and I, I get a lot of first-time buyers, both for plants, hardscape, fish, you name it. You know, I get a lot of people that are new to the hobby coming to me, probably because I've been around for a while. And what I tell them is, I think it's especially important and probably critically important that people not get cheap when it comes to the shipping method. Faster is always better. I mean, shipping is inherently stressful. Fish are being put into a bag, shoved into an insulated box, you know, driven in a truck, thrown on a plane, driven on another truck, and then dropped at the door. There's nothing about that that's natural for a fish. So the shorter amount of time you can have them in transit, the better, and also the better ability the shipper has to provide a stable temperature for the critters while they're in transit. I only ship fish priority overnight, which means I drop them off at FedEx, you know, at like 4 p.m. and they're delivered by 10 a.m. the next day. I know it's very tempting for a lot of folks. You know, you see the difference between overnight service, you know, say that's $45 and then second day or priority will be like $15. I think it's critically important to get them shipped as quickly as possible to prevent any secondary issues. We've all heard from our local fish stores that you bring home the bag, float it in the water for 10 to 15 minutes, and then slowly kind of bring in some of the tank water to acclimate it. Is the process the same when you order through the mail? I actually don't acclimate. Generally speaking, if you're having fish shipped to you, the best thing to do is get them out of the shipping water and into their quarantine tank. It's the best thing. As I mentioned, fish are, you know, breathing and using up available oxygen, which drives down the pH in the shipping water. 
And as soon as you open that bag and allow oxygen to get into that bag, the pH, the CO2 gas is off and the pH goes up through the roof, which if the water is super soft, it's not as critical. But if there's any sort of hardness to that water, as water gets harder, you know, uh, ammonia toxicity goes up exponentially. So by allowing that gas off and exposing your fish to air and then doing little drips, you know, for an hour or a few hours, you're actually putting them in a more and more toxic environment. So if you're going to drip, I must say, it's absolutely critical as soon as you open up that shipping bag that you detoxify the shipping water with a water conditioner. And really, I found that mortality drops by almost half if you just open up the bag, pour the fish into a net, and get them in the aquarium. Short drip acclimation achieves nothing other than making the fish keeper feel better, but it adds a lot more stress to your fish. Yeah, I, I want to say I do think it's important to mention that, you know, if you're using an aquarium with, with aqua soil or the tropical soils or any of the humates that pull out hardness and you're running a lot of CO2, you need to be aware of your water parameters before you do that. Of course, it's always recommended to get any shipped fish or any fish from a fish store into a quarantine. Awesome. And as, as far as fish, what's the difference between shoaling and schooling fish? Basically, a shoal of fish is an aggregation of fish or a grouping of fish. Often they're of similar size and shape. Often they move together and they have a social hierarchy. They're actively engaging with each other. Schooling fish are more what I think most people think they want, which is the really strong directional movement. A lot of those fish have passive markers, which is, you know, a stripe on the side, a particular dot on a dorsal fin, maybe a lamp eye, whatever that they use to line up. And they're extremely directional. Think of things like your cardinal tetras and your harlequin rasboras, some of the classics that a lot of people stock in their carefully aquascaped aquariums. The vast majority of people who take the time and effort to aquascape and create this, you know, contrived slice of nature want a predictable behavior from their fish for them to utilize a particular area of the water column. Because of that, it makes more sense to get a fish with a predictable behavior. And the schooling fish have quorum sensing, which means sort of like a collective reaction that can be extremely predictable when they're kept in good numbers. And this is why fish like, you know, the Cardinals, the Rummy Nose, all those sorts of fish have always been so popular in aquascaping. You can do lots of things to make fish behave a certain way in an aquarium or inhabit a particular area of an aquarium. You know, for instance, I use little shoaling fish, the Boraris brigitae, the chili rasboras, and a little nano speck I have in my living room. Now, generally, if you just have them in an aquascaped aquarium and let them loose in there, they're, they all group together, but they're all going different directions. You know, they're not predictable in their behavior, but you can do a few things to make them more predictable, and that's things like manipulating your filter output to create a channel of calm where you want them to hang out. 
there's lots of tips and tricks you can do like that to, to manipulate fish. But I think that the vast majority of people just need to focus more on having a larger amount of one species than few of a lot of species because you'll always get a more natural behavior from a larger group no matter what type of, of fish you choose. This brings up an interesting point about fish, but also about design. And it was an eye-opener for me because sometimes we can get locked into that two-dimensional space when thinking about designing our aquascapes because we're envisioning that final photograph or how it's going to look online. But we can take things like flow, for example, which we've learned in the past to use to create an optimal environment for our plants to grow. But we can also use flow to manipulate the behavior of the fish within our aquascape. So now we're thinking in terms of designing the breadth, the movement of the aquascape, in addition to the hardscape and plant placement. Understanding you know, fish's needs and fish behavior uh, is really, really helpful when you're trying to plan for taking your photographs, you know, for, for different online contests or whatever. If you, I know most people pull their equipment, but if you can use a carefully placed discharge so that you can create that, that pocket of current, you can basically make a schooling fish into a little bait ball where you want it. Keep your questions coming in as audio and video files to aquascapingpodcast at gmail.com for your chance to have George Farmer answer your question personally right here on the show. I'm hearing through the grapevine that heaters might be overrated. How well do tropical fish do in slightly cooler temperatures? And do we do we really need heaters? You know, I think that's one of those those questions that a lot of people won't like my answer to. I don't think the vast majority of people that keep their home at what I consider a comfortable living temperature really need heaters, especially if they're running lights, you know. If you look at the collection data from, you know, let's say a range of tropical fish and see what the seasonal shift is and their threshold for temperature, you'll find that many of the tropical species do have periods of time in the year, for instance, like our winter, where the water is cooler than tropical temps. And then in the summer, at the peak of summer, they're way warmer than what we normally keep our aquariums. You know, what you would want to avoid is keeping fish at a substantially colder temperature for the entire duration. You know, I in my fish room, it does get a seasonal cool down just because it's colder in winter and it's harder to keep the room warm. You have to know what happens in your aquarium before you can make the decision whether or not you need a heater. You know, how cold is it getting? How warm is it getting? You know, it's, it's not a simple blanket answer, but I think that there's probably a lot more applications where heaters are unnecessary than people think. Are there any algae eaters out there that are particularly good at doing that job, but maybe some of us aren't aware of? 
Uh, I think Panda Gara are super underrated. Uh, Gara Filavatra. You know, they can be kept alone. Unlike, you know, I think Otocinclus is one of the most misunderstood algae eaters. I see them put in all sorts of aquariums that I would never recommend them for. They, they actually, in the wild, they school like tetras in these giant masses, extremely directionally. So I always, you know, my heart breaks a little bit for Otos every time I see, you know, two or three added to a small aquarium. I love seeing them in groups of 20 or more. Whereas Pandagara, they're an, they're an Asian species, will eat algae phenomenally, and they're fine alone or in a group. They don't get, I mean, they get maybe two and a half inches, I think. They have interesting color, cool patterns, are, are super durable, can take a wide range of parameters from low oxygen to high oxygen. I think they're, they're a really excellent choice. Also, you know, depending on the aquarium set up and the amount of dissolved oxygen, a lot of the Borneo sucker types, your gastromyazons, pseudogastromyazons, and things like that can, can actually work in a lot of applications. Let's say I'm going on vacation for a week. Should I worry about the fish eating in that time frame? Can they, in general, you know, can can they survive a week without food, or is that something uh, you need to worry about when going away? I don't worry about it unless I'm leaving my aquariums for more than two weeks. If you are really, really concerned about your fish being fed while you're on vacation, I would recommend that you label the tanks and then create portioned bags that are labeled with what day you want them fed rather than leaving any open containers of food for someone who isn't primary fish caretaker. It's just really hard for me because, you know, like if you guys ever watch me on YouTube, every time I do a species spotlight, I say it's my favorite fish. And it's it's kind of <laughs> true because I, I just, I love fish. Um, if I had to keep only one species of fish in one tank for the rest of my life with that one plant and my manzanita driftwood, it would probably be white cloud mountain minnows. They're you know, like often found in feeder tanks, but they're absolutely stunning when maintained in groups. They're very breedable, which means I would be able to perpetuate the colony. They're durable and they're also extinct in the wild. So, you know, you're doing good deep. And they're only maintained at this point through fish farmers, both overseas and here in the United States, as well as hobbyists. I feed a wide range of things. I culture a lot of live foods. I find that, especially when I'm getting in new fish that are, are being shipped or imported, for the vast majority of species, if you offer a high-fat, high-protein live food in those first few days, it really seems to help boost their immunity and get them off to the right start. Microworms, albeit smelly, are pretty easy. It's not hard to culture baby brine from time to time. Uh, some other cultures that are pretty easy to do are white worms, actually, as long as things aren't too warm. You just put them in potting soil and feed them fish food once a week. That's super easy. Red wigglers you can often get from local ag offices, composting worms. They're phenomenal for your medium-sized fish or larger. You know, I guess the ones that I focus on is I do raise Daphnia generally in the summer months uh, because I don't travel as much then so I'm home to feed the cultures and I can do it outside and, and you know if you're not interested in doing live food cultures you certainly don't need to you know you just want to pick frozen foods if you know for um, a supplement that are of good quality I 
just try and avoid foods that have a lot of terrestrial grains or things that fish wouldn't normally eat or generic fish meals in them. If you look at the ingredients on food, it could be pretty shocking. And, and if I'm gonna feed dried, I often will feed stuff like freeze-dried krill, and I'll actually run it through a coffee grinder or my food processor to pulse it down so it's finer particles for the smaller fish. Or I'll use pellets that are extremely hard and with very little filler so that it's usable nutrition instead of fillers that just pollute our water. Let's go! All right, that's it for this week's episode of the Aquascaping Podcast. To find out more about Rachel O'Leary, you can check her out on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram by searching Miss Jinxed. That's M-S-J-I-N-K-Z-D. You can also check her out at MissJinxed.com. There she has species profiles, a current stock list, upcoming speaking events, and general information. Don't forget to check us out, aquascapingpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, and you can listen to all the interviews and shows over at aquascapingpodcast.com. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a good week, and we'll see you next time.